one in two Americans know someone who has been incarcerated or impacted by incarceration. Like that's a, a shocking statistic. You think 50% of the country has had someone who's affected by this issue. And yet there are virtually no nonprofits that are doing the work at the scale that needs to be done. Welcome to the Careers They Didn't Tell You About podcast by Second Day. My name is Maria Mathien, and every other week I'll be sitting down with people who work in everything from community organizing to philanthropy to social entrepreneurship to learn how they got their start, get their hot takes on social change careers, and get their advice on how our listeners can go and build long-term careers working on issues that they care about. This week, I am so excited to sit down with one of my favorite people, one of my favorite organizations. Caitlin Koga is the chief of staff of The Bail Project, where she coordinates the strategic human capital and scaling priorities of the organization. Caitlin brings a decade of experience working on social justice issues, including over seven years of direct service work with low-income youth and incarcerated individuals, as well as managing over a dozen impact-focused consulting projects with nonprofits and government organizations in the U.S. and abroad. Prior to the Bail Project, Caitlin led strategy at a prison education nonprofit, served as a college counselor in Boston public schools, developed criminal justice reform policy at the White House, and worked as an associate consultant at a nonprofit human capital management firm. Caitlin has a BA in history and literature from Harvard College and an MBA from the Yale School of Management. She's currently a board member of the United We Dream, the largest immigrant youth-led network in the country. So we're going to dig into a lot of those topics with Caitlin today, but very grateful to sit in conversation with her. And I think that you will gain a lot from it. I know that I certainly did. Caitlin, I'm really excited to have this conversation. I think there's so many different pieces to your career, but also the work you do at the Bail Project that I'm really excited to dig into. So let's just you know jump right into it. How did your passion for activism and particularly criminal justice reform develop in your own life? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I think I've shared this with you before, but the work that you're doing is tremendous. And it's a personal passion of mine to connect uh, young people and, and folks that are passionate about the social justice sector Two opportunities um, I certainly benefited throughout my career and trying to find my way from a lot of support and guidance from other folks to just really appreciate the spirit of this podcast and also Second Day in general. But to kind of start back from where I got passionate about social justice, for me, I grew up in a community where, you know, these issues just were part of like the life that I was growing up in. And in particular, one of my mentors, my voice teacher, actually, you know, really imbued this as part of our music and the kind of music that we were producing in the community and trying to get the word out. Um, she was a single mom who had a daughter with Down syndrome and just experienced a lot of personal hardship, a lot of discrimination, and wanted really music to be one of the ways that we spread the message about tolerance, about justice, about caring for people who are marginalized. And so from a young age, that was something that was always a part of my life. But when I got to college, I really became serious about trying to think about like, how can I make this my life's calling and started doing work, you know, particularly in the youth space and working with youth empowerment when something else sort of happened in my life that kind of changed my trajectory. And that was that one of my brother's friends ended up uh, being incarcerated for life when he was just in his early 20s. And for me, you know, kind of being always being in, involved and passionate about social justice, I had never really known a lot about the criminal justice system. And, and I think even for those of us who you know, are passionate about youth work or climate justice, the criminal justice system can remain this very hidden part of the world because sometimes we don't have contact. And by design, it's sort of meant to be hidden away behind bars and what happens there to people. And so for me, having a friend, my brother's friend who ended up incarcerated, really made that personal and made it not just an abstract concept, but someone real who is now, you know, basically deemed by society to be worthless and to have no potential for the world. And so I really, you know, this issue kind of uh, echoed for me and I started looking into mass incarceration and it just opened up this giant world that it wasn't just my brother's friends, that there were millions of people that were impacted by being incarcerated in this country and that the United States was the largest incarcerator out of any other country in the world per capita and by absolute numbers. And that was shocking to me. And it made me realize, you know, that there there was this huge opportunity for change, that this was one of the greatest civil justice, civil rights issues of our time, 
and that there wasn't a lot of resources working on it. And so that really became kind of a calling for me in my in my early 20s was just trying to figure out, you know, how to attack this issue and how to get people to care because it was something that was so, you know, I, I, I felt like I turned a page into this world and then it became impossible to not see not only how impactful the criminal justice system was, but also how it was related to everything else I was doing, the youth work and seeing young people get swept into the system and the school to prison pipeline and the ways that people were being disenfranchised and voting. There were so many connections. And once I kind of stepped into that world, it was impossible to turn back. Yeah, I think there's two things that really struck me about what you just said. First, how intersectional something like mass incarceration is to so many other areas of our lives, but it is so hidden. It kind of feels like this dark, kind of rotting infrastructure foundation that America is sitting on that we don't see it, but it's there. Uh, everything is like sitting on top of it. And, but yeah, it's the thing that is kind of keeping us rotten in so many ways, right? It's, it's like this really toxic element of our day to day lives that we don't even see. So I think that's just such a vivid reminder of that reality. And I think, you know, the other thing that struck me, particularly in earlier conversations we've had, is that in your early 20s, when you were really drawn to this work and it became very personal, at that time, people weren't really talking about mass incarceration the way that they are now. It was not in the kind of zeitgeist, it was not in the mainstream public consciousness. And it was really just certain circles that people were really talking about this so actively. But you decided to shift your career that way. So what was that experience like deciding that this is the thing you wanted to devote your time to, but it wasn't a mainstream kind of social cause yet? Yeah, absolutely. It was, um, you know, it was really tough, I think, to kind of figure out how to attack the issue when, you know, there wasn't even a kind of a public awareness. And so one of the things you can ask a lot of my friends from my early 20s, one of the things that I just started doing was just talking about it. You know, I just felt like, even if it's at the small scale, just talking to people about why I cared about this issue, why it mattered, what was so unique about the problem in the United States that, you know, actually a lot of people don't know that we didn't used to have a system of mass incarceration. This is a recent phenomena. This was something that grew from the 70s to the 2000s and, and that previously we had rates of incarceration that were much lower. And so what was driving that and what was creating, you know, this problem and how could we reverse it? It was a lot of just trying to have those one-on-one -on -one conversations, um, but I was also trying to learn more about the issue. You know, there even though it wasn't a mainstream issue, there have always been people that have been working on abolishing prisons, on reforming criminal justice, on trying to get services and supports to people inside. Some of those are small grassroots organizations. Some of those are people who have been directly impacted. So families and community members and people who themselves have been incarcerated. And so I really started to try to seek out those perspectives because those were the people who were doing the work that I wanted to do and really to try to kind of build the work in that space. And so for me, it was a lot about you know, trying to get the word out, trying to continue learning, and then trying to think about what are the strategies that have been tried and where could I contribute? Like, how could I bring, you know, the unique kind of talents and experiences I have to this issue that I know matters? Yeah, I think we talk a lot on this podcast about networking and talking to people and having conversations as a form of both education and your job search. But I think something that you said that stands out to me is being thoughtful about who you talk to. So for you, talking to people who have lived experience with the criminal justice system, with mass incarceration is really critical. I think it's very tempting to talk to like a narrow perspective of people, people that maybe you know, the ones who seem mainstream or might have an academic specialty in an issue. And certainly they have something to contribute, but sometimes the people, often the people that we don't listen to are the ones who are doing that work in the background, who have the lived experience or not given the platform to share their stories and share their experiences. So I'm curious for you, how did you go about finding people to talk to, the right people to talk to, people who had that lived experience, building those relationships? Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think it actually ties to what I was what I was seeking in terms of my work. So, you know, at the time I was doing a lot of work in youth work and that's how I was making a living. And it was also something I was passionate about. I was working as a college counselor. I was working in schools, um, and then I was also doing some consulting work. So I was working at a consulting firm, helping social justice nonprofits, and that was wonderful. But I really felt passionately about this issue. And so I started looking at how could I do this work long term and how could I get involved? 
And one of the organizations that I found was an organization called Partakers College Behind Bars, which was really doing that work that you were just alluding to, really kind of thinking about how do we empower people to really get inside, work with people inside, listen to their voices, understand what they need, and support them in their educational and kind of life, ultimately life journeys. And so it was a program that sent volunteers into prisons and helped them who uh, helped folks who were getting their college degrees get resources that they needed to be able to succeed, you know, in their studies and ultimately graduate from college. And so I, you know, there were no paid opportunities at that program. It was a really grassroots effort, but I started getting involved and I started volunteering both to work with folks inside and, and hear about their experiences, what they were going through. And then I also started working with the executive director who was an amazing kind of leader in the community was someone who himself had been incarcerated and then moved into this leadership role of kind of building and growing this whole program kind of single-handedly with a lot of support from the community and really tried to learn from him. And so those were opportunities, you know, that were not paid. They weren't listed anywhere. They really came about because I knew that to get involved in this issue, I would have to, you know, really seek out those opportunities. And so I did. And, and, and it ended up being one of the most transformative kind of experiences was, was that kind of first formative time really getting on the ground and, and learning about these issues from, like you said, not an academic perspective or from a policy expert, but from people who were living it and who were really the best equipped to kind of define what some of the issues were and, and where the opportunities for change were. Yeah. And I would imagine that in areas of social change and social impact that are not quite, and I'm using big air quotes, mainstream, because to your point, you know, mass incarceration has impacted millions of people for a while now, even if we didn't talk about it. But you had to kind of be willing to work unpaid, do that sort of, yeah, that unpaid work. But that was because this was an issue you cared deeply about. And there just weren't paid opportunities because it was so, quote, early stages of this this kind of organizing and, and, and effort. So curious if you have advice for people who are listening, who are coming up against that as well, right? They're like, I'm something that I'm interested in. And I'm beating the pavement, but I really can't find anything that's paid. How do I how do I balance that? Like, how do I decide that it's worth taking that work and paid? And obviously, everybody's situation is very different. What they can afford to do, they can't afford to do. But wondering if you can kind of give people some framework to how they might navigate that conversation just for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, I really wanted to get paid, and I wanted to be able to do it. And it wasn't just about money; it was really about capacity, right? You you know, folks, especially when you're young. And, and coming into your career or depending on your your family circumstances or what your obligations are, you know, really do need to be able to make their living and, and meet their needs. And so for me, I was also concerned about that exact question, you know, like, how can I do this work? But how, do, how can I have the capacity to do this work? And so for me, it was a lot of trying to stitch together, you know, kind of an unconventional way, which was that I worked part time. And I worked kind of several different jobs and I did different kind of consulting pieces and tried to kind of stitch together an income that worked for me while also volunteering. And then I really tried to make an effort to turn that volunteer opportunity into a paid opportunity. And so I did that by applying for a personal kind of grant to do a project. So I worked with a, I applied for a foundation grant um, with the L.L. Lyman Cabot Foundation, which grants kind of first personal social justice projects. And so they really look for people who are passionate about an issue and fund that. And, and they're kind of a small nonprofit that funds, you know, maybe one or two projects a year, not at an enormous level, but is enough to kind of help sustain the work. Um, and so I ended up getting that fellowship. And that's actually what allowed me to really de devote the capacity that I wanted to this organization for two years before I ended up moving on to graduate school. I think, you know, that for some people, you know, who really want to make this a living for forever, those those grants are not going to be enough. But they can be the kind of, I think, bridge for folks who want to just get that experience. And there are other types of fellowships I would encourage folks to look into, you know, their school programs or other public service fellowships that are looking for projects or for passionate people that might be able to fund work for a year or two to just get that experience and be able to do that work full time. But if that's not available, I do think kind of pulling together, you know, and, and thinking about, could you work full-time and volunteer on the weekends for something that you're passionate about? Or can you work three quarters time and kind of be able to, to pull together something that way enables you to have that experience and that time and capacity? Because it's really hard if you're working a full-time job to just, you know, do that work with one or two hours that you have free. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that I hear so much of what makes people intimidated or nervous by working in social impact is that it is non-linear, that it can get messy, right? Like you said, mm-hmm. you stitch together opportunities, you figure out where am I going to volunteer and where am I going to fight for that paid internship? There is no formula to how you build this kind of career. And that can be really scary, particularly if you're just starting out your career and you're really fresh and have no idea what you're doing. But I think that your story is a really great example of with the right support and information, you can kind of create that really unconventional path and get close to those spaces that you care about and and support the organizations that you're excited about. Like this personal grant, obviously not a thing a lot of people would know is an option, but by building those connections and asking the right questions, you can surface those opportunities in creative ways to continue to you know be able to sustain yourself and do the work that you care about. So I think that that's that's just really helpful to hear and remind people that yes, it is messy. It can be a little crazy and stitched together, but it can really move you closer to where you want to be. So after the two years and sort of that in between of working as a college counselor doing part time work, is that when you went to business school? When did business school enter your trajectory? Yeah, and actually, just to go back for one second, you know, Please. to build on what you were sharing, I think the other piece about that kind of stitching together and and making a plan is having a sense of what type of skills that you can employ and how you can how you can monetize those skills. You know, so for example, I had done a lot of direct service work, and so I knew that in the education sector, there are always jobs that people have for tutors, for people who do support. For me, it was college counseling work that I was doing part-time. And so if you have like a certain skill set, and it could be direct service, like working with people, and there are a lot of opportunities there, you know, those are more traditional jobs that exist in the sector. Or maybe you're a development person, right? And you know how to write grants. There are always one-off jobs or kind of opportunities in development. There are always jobs for people who are copywriters or are helping to kind of pull together materials or are coders and can build websites for nonprofits or other organizations. So I think knowing kind of what's your base set of skills that you can offer them to make money, which could be in consulting or shorter term opportunities that free up that capacity. And then kind of thinking about, and then what do I want to do? What's my dream? Um, and how can I build those things? And sometimes those, those skill sets really do nicely overlap. You know, for me, the direct service work that I was doing in education directly translated to the work that I wanted to do with folks in prison who were pursuing educational opportunities. So there might be like a nice marriage of those things where you can do both. But if you can't, I think kind of segmenting the skills is one of the ways that I thought about how do you kind of fill the gaps of your needs while also getting to do what you're really passionate about and you want to do. Pivoting to business school, it was a yeah, it was an interesting decision and it came a lot out of these questions, you know, around like, well, I'm working at this organization, I'm I'm frantically writing grants to fund my salary. It is such a meaningful organization that's doing such incredible work, but we only have enough resources to pay for the executive director and to manage a volunteer base that basically one and a half of us can manage, which was about maybe 50 or 60 volunteers at the time, you know, up to 100 volunteers serving about 50 or 60 people. And so we know how big this problem is. And yet there aren't the resources, there isn't the energy. Where is the momentum around actually dedicating resources and talent to this enormous problem that's affecting millions and millions of Americans and even more? There was a pretty shocking statistic that came out that said that one in two Americans know someone who has been incarcerated or impacted by incarceration. Like That's a a shocking statistic. You think 50% of the country has had someone who's affected by this issue. And yet there are virtually no nonprofits that are doing the work at the scale that needs to be done. And so that question kind of lingered with me. And it's what made me land on business school. Um, And yeah, exactly. As you said, after I did those two years of kind of working, um, I actually worked for four years. So I worked for four years in schools and doing consulting and doing half time for two years at kind of working in this prison education organization. And then I decided, you know, this is the issue I want to work on. I want to work on it full time at scale. And I think that I need a different set of skills to be able to contribute, to build an organization or to grow an organization, to help get capital and talent into the space. And that was what kind of drove me to business school. And I was trying to achieve a couple of things, you know, like one, I think going back to that issue of, of, of who knows about this and who's trying to work on, on this issue, I felt so often that I was in an echo chamber of people who I loved and were passionate and were my community and cared about this. 
but no one else outside of our, our circles were, were really invested. And so one piece was, how do I get introduced to people who are in sectors all across the business community, all across nonprofit sectors, who are doing arts, who are doing you know biotech and finance and get them to care about this? How do we get that broad set of people who have a lot of influence and a lot of access to capital to care? Can I do that? You know, that was a hypothesis. And then second, how do I build my capacity to um, engage those people? How do I learn how to pitch or talk about this issue with folks who might have no reference point to this? Um, and then I think third was really about how do I really build my skills around growing an organization? And what are the lessons that I can learn from organizations that have scaled in the nonprofit sector or the for-profit sector that have really you know, made an idea something that's mainstream and something that people want to buy or want to participate in? How can I do that for this issue of mass incarceration? So that was really kind of the, the rationale and the, the interest in, in pursuing an MBA. How did people in your MBA program react to you wanting to work on mass incarceration coming out of B school? What did, did people yeah. get it? Were they confused? Did, were they excited? Like what was, what was the vibe at that time for you? Yeah, I mean, I went to um, the Yale School of Management and, and Yale SOM actually has a pretty strong nonprofit vibe. You know, they have a mission of educating leaders for business and society, and they have their roots as actually a nonprofit management school. So before they were an MBA, they actually were a master's degree for nonprofit management. Um, so I actually, you know, I still thought that coming in that it would be a big ask and a big sell, but honestly, people were so interested in it and, and because they had never heard about it. And it was exactly as I imagined, they'd never been exposed and they wanted to know, like, what is this problem? What are you talking about? Like, why are you interested in this? It's so strange. And that kind of curiosity actually led to quite a number of people asking me about how they could be involved. When I later ended up at the Bill Project and I started doing some work, supporting the organization, fundraising the organization, many of them donated. And many of them told me that this was something that they were really proud to know about and wanted to be engaged in. So yeah, I mean, there were certainly some awkward conversations, as you can imagine, some people that were less interested, but the vast majority of people wanted to know about a world that was different from them, similar to the way that I wanted to know about a world different from mine. And we're really, you know, shocked and kind of, I think, raised this level of conscientiousness for them around this issue that they didn't even know about before kind of having that conversation. So it was a it was a great kind of way to, I think, engage people. And I found that people were much more receptive than I expected. I think there's something uniquely tragic and upsetting and infuriating about mass incarceration in this country that once someone tells you even a little bit, you can't quite look away from it or get it out of your head. That I feel like was my journey for sure is that mm -hmm. the minute I started learning about it, it just like, it just got its hooks in me. And it's something I'm very kind of emotional about too. It, there's something so pervasive about it that, yeah, I can understand once people in your community started hearing you talk about it, you can't help but ask a lot of questions and get invested in some capacity. So I'm glad to hear that that was the case in business school. And to the things you mentioned earlier, the kind of three goals you had for yourself going into a business school program, did you feel like you accomplish those things? Do you feel like you've got a lot of those tools that you didn't have before? How have some of those things kind of played into the way that you operated the Bail Project now? Yeah, I think as with a lot of pieces, it was less about the experience and more about almost the confidence, you know? So I, I think I had this, this sense that business school MBAs had this mystique about them. Like, what, what is that? And, and oh my gosh, someone who has an MBA must know so, so many things or be able to do so many things that I can't do. And kind of being there really demystified the process and kind of affirmed for me that like, I am an equal with these with these folks and you can hold your own, you know, coming from the nonprofit sector or believing in social justice values. Um, and that at the end of the day, an MBA program is about leadership. And I think, you know, lots of people from a lot of different backgrounds that people don't norm normally associate with an MBA have tremendous um, amounts of ability and, and just thoughtfulness to add to like a leadership conversation and a leadership quality. So that was kind of a big, important kind of, I think, takeaway for me was just gaining confidence in myself and learning about, you know, different ways that people speak about business and how that world works. It was kind of like 
learning a language and and figuring out how to access spaces that I thought were not open to me before and feeling like, no, I can access these spaces and and I should access these spaces because they're places of immense privilege and power um, and capital. And those are places that, you know, should be dedicating resources to the world's most urgent problems. And so I think that was kind of a big piece of it. I think in terms of, you know, other kind of goals or takeaways, there are just some basics I think in for for me, like quantifiable skills and and quantitative skills that were important because I, you know, had done my major in humanities. It was sort of, I was a history and literature major. And I wanted to learn more about how to read financial statements, about how to understand spreadsheet modeling and some of the like, you know, business analytics. And, And those were tools that Again, they were they were very abstract. They seemed very intimidating to me. And just getting to take a few classes helped break that down for me and help them feel more accessible as a general skill set. And one that I think is really needed in the nonprofit sector, because so many of us come from this work from, you know, social work or working directly with folks or, you know, kind of the passion that we have. And part of what I really want the sector to focus on, too, is is impact. You know, like, are we really having the impact that we're seeing? Are we meeting our commitments? And that requires, I think, being able to really look at numbers and look at, you know, how we're spending resources, how we're actually measuring our program impact and what we're actually doing at the end of the day. So. For me, some of those skills were about accountability, and I really appreciated getting to dig into that, as well as, as I mentioned, just having the confidence to operate in these spaces that can feel rarefied and you know intimidating and to feel like they're accessible and, and that you can actually make a difference in those spaces. Our third co-founder, Bridget, is actually getting an MBA right now for all of the reasons that you listed. So that's that's really helpful to hear. You also mentioned confidence, and and I think that that is a very, very powerful piece of going to grad school in general. But I think to your point in the society we live in, MBAs have this particular kind of clout. So, and I think that that confidence seems like it served you fairly well because a few months after graduation, you got connected to the founder of the Bail Project, Robin Steinberg. And that meeting seems to have really changed the trajectory of your life in so many ways. So do you remember how that connection was initially made and what your early interactions were with her? How did you actually end up joining the founding team? Yeah, um, it goes back to really, I think, those early days of just having conversations with everyone that would possibly listen to me about this issue. So, you know, I was pretty active on social media, on my Facebook, but also in conversations with people around wanting to do this work and caring a lot about criminal justice reform, around racial justice issues, around civil rights. And so when I graduated from business school, I was kind of meeting up with some friends that I hadn't connected with with a while. And one of them actually worked for Robin at the Bronx Defenders. And he had seen a number of my posts and knew that this was something that I was passionate about. And so we reconnected really to kind of catch up personally, but also to kind of hear about the shared interests. You know, he was a public defender. I was working on criminal justice issues and passionate about them. And he actually said, hey, you know, my my boss is starting a brand new organization and I think you'd be a good fit. So would it be okay for me to share your information? And so from, you know, just having conversations, putting out into the universe how much I cared about this issue and how much I wanted people to engage with me on this issue, I was able to get this connection um, to Robin. And we met over a, a spaghetti dinner. We had dinner at an Italian restaurant. And just kind of talked about why we cared about the issues. And she let me know that she was building this organization and there were, there was no structure yet. You know, there were no set roles, but that she saw my background, saw my passion, saw that I brought, you know, sort of general management skills. And she said, you know, do you want to join us? Do you want to join us as a chief of staff and help to build this organization? And there's no job description yet. We don't have a team. We're building it all. We don't have an office. But we're getting started and would love to have you on board. And of course, I said, yes, you know, this was really the dream that I had been sort of telegraphing into the universe for about at that point, you know, a decade, really wanting to work on this issue and work on it at scale. And so the Bill Project, which launched with the dream of opening over 25 sites across the country and serving 100,000 people, was just that opportunity, right? It was the opportunity to really kind of build the organization that was going to have an impact and really interrupt the cycle of mass incarceration by working on bail in the pretrial space. So yeah, that was how I got connected. And it was a lot of luck and fortune, I think, but it was also a a result of the work, you know, and of actually trying to build this kind of interest, build a network and let people know this is what I want to work on. And if you know about opportunities, please let me know. 
Yeah, I think this telegraphing it out into the universe, telegraphing it out into the, your networks. I love that phrase. I've heard you use it before. Can you speak to this in a little bit more detail of what that means to you and what advice you have for people who are trying to get the word out about the causes that they care about, who are seeking connections, seeking community? What are some of the things that you did that you found to be effective and why? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a this is a space that can feel really uncomfortable for people because it can feel sort of like you're marketing yourself or that you are more important than the issue or kind of your passions or your career is more important than the issue. And I think the way that I wanted to always approach this was, I care about this issue. And I think that I have ways that I can contribute. And so let me share that with as many people as I can. And if folks are interested, and if they, you know, feel like I can, I can be a supportive partner to their work, or if they know someone who is, then they'll connect me to it. And if they don't think that I'm the right fit, or they don't feel like there's an opportunity, that's fine, you know, and it it doesn't have to be a this judgmental kind of experience. It can really just be about like, look, I'm passionate, I care. And I want to share that with you. And if you know of something, you know, connect me in and let me know how I can support. And so I think coming to it with this kind of spirit of collaboration and also knowing that there are so many people that are actually looking for folks, you know, to contribute to their causes that are looking for people that have specific skills. I think it goes back also to naming like, what can you contribute? You know, can you help build a website? Can you help organize a team? Can you help translate in another language? Like what are the kind of specific skills and competencies you bring? And how can you be of support to people who are already leading this work so that it's not about you or your ego or your career, but really about this movement that you want to be a part of and that you want to kind of continue to build and that that you reciprocate that, right? Like that you're building kind of opportunities for other people to get involved as you learn as about opportunities and as you grow your network of folks. So I think networking can feel like a very dirty word. Marketing yourself can feel very dirty. It can feel very self-centered. But if you can approach it from a space of collaboration, of really naming where you can specifically contribute, of sharing that out to people and and attending events and meeting folks and, and letting folks know, then I think it kind of happens pretty organically that folks will be excited and interested in your work and will be wanting to bring you in and within time that you're also able to do that for other people. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say is that you eventually will have your own network that you can kind of pay it forward and connect future folks to. And as long as you are ready and able and willing to do that, then it's a big cycle of all of us supporting one another in this work. I think the other thing, and I'm sure I've said this before, But you can and should go into that networking from a really authentic space as well. Back in the day when I was going to in-person networking events, which now feels like a million years ago, and I'm sure we'll do them again. But I remember walking into a networking event, not knowing a single person in there. As long as you are yourself, people can really pick up on that energy. And that's true even in a virtual setting. I think people know when you're putting on a front or you know trying to cater to what they want to hear. All of that comes through. So being authentic is really an important part of the process. And that's also how you can tackle some of the feeling salesy about it. You're not being salesy about it. You're being yourself and you're putting out like, here's what I care about. Here's what I can do. The other thing that I was thinking about as you were talking, one of the challenges that I think I'm hearing more and more people talk about when it comes to young talent, curious if you have noticed this, I will say I certainly have noticed this sometimes crop up which is particularly when, you work, when you're working with younger talent that is entering the social impact space, there is an assumption that social change is going to happen quickly, that they are going to be the person to like solve it. And they forget that there is like a much bigger mechanism in place, right? So an example I think of is I've worked with students as a mentor, not necessarily in my program, but in other programs who are, let's say, helping build a webpage for a government agency to make it clear what benefits you have access to in that state which is really, really important. But I hear from them that they're frustrated. They're like, this isn't that meaningful, or I'm not like really getting in there. And I wanted to be able to kind of Mm -hmm. see the impact more. And what I have to constantly remind them is this is part of a bigger picture thing. And someone has to do this work, right? This is If we're going to make benefits more accessible in the state of Colorado, making that information clearer online is a key part of that. And even if it doesn't feel glamorous or doesn't feel high impact, rooting yourself back and like, okay, how does this fit into the bigger picture is something I constantly have to remind people of. And that patience and that humility 
And that collaboration, I think, is really, really critical for people to step into this work, kind of rooting themselves in those pieces. So curious if that resonates, but that's just something that I was kind of rolling around in my head as we're talking too. Yeah, it resonates a lot. And I think that humility comes in a lot of ways. You know, one is around exactly what you were saying about, I think there's a social justice piece about like believing that you are the one that's going to change something when all of these efforts around social change have been collective efforts and they have been collective efforts in the present, but they've also been collective efforts around like across generations, right? So we are standing on the shoulders of giants all the time with the progress that we're, we're we're working towards. And and even when that is tenuous, you know, and even when it feels shaky, like that foundation is actually built from so many hands and so many people's labor and labors of love. And so I think there's humility about not centering yourself in a movement that is made up of, of hundreds of thousands of people across time and will be taken up by someone in the future too, right? So there's also this piece of of not believing that you're the kind of sole leader, but that you're building leadership across time. So I think that's kind of one piece of humility that's really important for people to carry. And then I think the other part of it is that, to be honest, like there isn't always like a strategic function in an organization or the, a glamorous leadership role. So much of running organizations is the many hats piece of nonprofits is that we all have to do all sorts of tasks. Many of them are unglamorous. And I think people are looking for. I'm certainly looking for as a leadership quality for people who will eventually become a department head or a CEO. I'm looking for someone who is willing to do all of the work, you know, and that includes the hard pieces, that includes the less glamorous, the less visible, the less public pieces, cleaning up, you know, after an event, you know, like putting away the chairs, who's staying around to do that. I notice those things. And I think um, those less glamorous tasks are often the ones that even though they are not visible externally, they're often very visible internally because people know how hard it is to, to sort through 3,000 lines of data to be able to get a participant list out so that we can bail someone out or get someone the services they need. They know that that's hard and it's not fun, but it's so, so important. Like you said, it's mission critical work. And so I think sometimes actually for people who are looking to really grow in their leadership or be in a more visible role or get to do more exciting projects, excelling at those non-glamorous pieces can really put you on the radar, I think, can really make people, can really gain you respect. And, you know, another piece, and it actually is sometimes the more glamorous work, but it's very hard work that I tell people who want to do social justice work is aside from the non-glamorous projects, you should always be connected to the people who you're serving. And so if you are wanting to work in education policy, but you've never taught in a classroom or you've never worked one-on-one -on -one with a student, it's going to be very, very hard for you to have credibility and trust, you know, and, and certainly people do that path and they can earn that. But I really, really encourage folks who want to do leadership roles or do special projects to spend some time actually doing the work, teaching or, or bailing someone out or, or, you know, working with someone who is houseless and getting them resources and, and going through the really hard task of calling a bunch of government agencies and trying to navigate those processes of people. Like if you don't have that on the ground view and the humility of what it's actually like to work in that space and how hard it can be, I think it's, you can really make a lot of missteps when trying to do those more exciting, large, glamorous strategic projects. So it's, it's a, I, I think that's such a critical point. And, and there's a lot of pieces to that, you know, of how you can show up with humility in this work and how it might actually lead you to doing the work that you, you're really excited or passionate about. I mean, the entire theory of change that we operate on at Second Day is the idea of people with lived experience, people who have firsthand knowledge, experience with these challenges are the ones who are best suited to drive change on them. You know, I think that's what we're trying to do at Second Day is have those people kind of have more access to these industries and these skill sets so that they can rise through the ranks and help us think about these challenges, not from a lens of charity as we have for so many decades and centuries, but from justice. And I think that's what we're trying to do. It's very challenging. But I think to your point, that's where that's the critical piece that can sometimes be missing in our space so, so often. So I resonate with all of that. Kind of jumping back to the work you do now with the Bail Project. So we were saying earlier that you know the zeitgeist hadn't totally picked up on the language of mass incarceration, the prison industrial complex, things that we now understand much better than we did you know a decade ago at least. How do you 
why do you think that that changed and what role do you feel like the bail project played in that shift? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and again, kind of speaking to the humility piece, you know, there are a lot of lot of organizations and a lot of people in the space that have helped to move that conversation. You know, I think about really important books like The New Jim Crow or Just Mercy, Michelle Alexander, Brian Stevenson, that really helped change some of the the popular kind of culture around this, where people were reading it, they were kind of being awakened to these issues. Of course, the many forces that went into the uprisings in 2020 following the death of George Floyd, people really kind of being organized and, and, and activating um, and being activated around criminal justice issues, police brutality. Those were all things that I think have contributed to a much more conscious set of people who are passionate about this issue and want to change that world, that work. Ta-Nehisi Coates is another person who's done amazing work in this space and has really, you know, through his writing and through his speaking kind of helped people to understand and to see race in this country and particularly with criminal justice. But the role that the Bill Project has really tried to play is in pretrial and in bail specifically. And just for the benefit of, of folks listening, I think bail is actually one of those spaces that a lot of people don't understand. And again, why would you, right? Why, why would you understand the space unless you've been exposed to it? Because it is another one of those dirty secrets that the United States doesn't talk about, which is, you know, that we really have this idea that people are innocent until proven guilty. That's a foundational principle of this country. And yet we have a system in place called bail, where, you know, if you are charged with a crime, even if you are presumed innocent, you often have a bail set on you, which is a dollar amount that determines whether or not you go to jail or whether or not you get to go home while your case pens, while you are waiting for your trial date. And a lot of people don't know that. People assume that bail is set for criminals or people who are guilty or people who have done something bad. What they don't understand is that it's actually set for everyday people who are arrested for anything. They could be arrested for anything. And if they and and if they don't have the money, what happens is that they that they are punished for it. So it's literally a system of justice that's just based on the size of your bank account. And and very few people, I think who have not been exposed to this issue really understand that about cash bail. And so what we've really tried to do is bring out that economic injustice and, and to really try to put people in perspective about what the system does to people and what it means, who enters it. The fact that, you know, for us, uh, over 90% of our cases are resolved and we get our funds back, you know? And so these cases don't really need to be handled through a cash bail system. They can be supported by the community, which is what we do. We have this belief that cash bail is what gets people to come to court, that money is what incentivizes people to come to court. But we've served 20,000 clients and they have put zero dollars in. The majority, the vast majority of them are coming back to court with support. And so what we've really tried to do is dispel myths about the criminal justice system, about the pretrial system, about cash bail by talking about stories, human stories, and how this impacts people, and also using data. So really showing what this looks like at scale. And I think it's really drawing people in, you know? So when you talk to someone about cash bail, I think one of the most powerful things to think about is, you know, if you were to be in the situation where you had to sit in jail for even a couple days, how would that disrupt your life? You know, how would that disrupt your commitments your job, your family, maybe kids that you have to take care of, responsibilities. If you, at this very moment, were so unlucky to be swept up in the criminal justice system, what would the impacts be on your life if you couldn't get back to your life for even a period of 24 hours, much less months or years? Um, and do you think that your outcomes would would be dependent on on money or dependent on the color of your skin? Um, and I think those are really thought-provoking questions for folks and and really get people to get into the perspective of, wow, this system, just like so many other parts of our criminal justice system, is so deeply flawed, is so deeply unjust, discriminates against people who are poor, against people who are Black, against people who are brown, against people who are queer, and has no place in a, in a society that proclaims to care about fair process and proclaims that people are innocent until proven guilty. Um, when in fact, you you know, your your innocence or guilt can be determined by money. So that's been a big part of our work is really that public education piece and getting people to learn what is even cash bail, what is pretrial, and how how do we change the system that is is being really perpetuated in our name? 
Yeah, I'll say I remember in 2020 seeing the Bale Project. I had known of y'all before 2020, but seeing you everywhere. People were learning about bail. They were understanding that protesters were getting arrested. And here are ways that you can support protesters who are getting arrested. Here's the Bail Project. Here are bail funds you can support. And that was something that I was really excited to see on y'all's behalf that people picked up on that really quickly. And I think that speaks to the education that you've done. Um, So just kudos. I think that's really impressive. The other thing I wanted to ask you about as you were talking, I think I said this in the beginning, but like particularly the prison industrial complex, specifically for me, wrongful incarceration is something that if I watch a documentary, I am in tears the entire time. I'm very physically stressed, physically upset. And it takes a big toll just watching a documentary. And I don't work in this space day in and day out. And so I wanted to ask you, how are you? How do you and your team protect your peace as best as you can? take care of yourselves in what I can imagine can be really emotionally challenging work? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I think with like all questions about kind of wellness, self-care, how you kind of find the ability to do the work or sustain the work, it can be so individual, you know? And I think with my team, there are so many people who are directly impacted. So folks who have experienced this issue personally or have family members who have experienced this issue or are still experiencing these issues, right? So the work is not abstract. It's incredibly personal. And when we have a victory, that that means so much. And when we have a loss, it, it can hurt that much more, right? Because we know how how deeply it affects our clients, but it's also can for many folks that is affecting them or their family members directly. And so I think you have to kind of take that passion and and figure out how to channel it. For some people, it is that shutting off, you know, can you actually just turn off on the weekends, try to shut off social media, try to stay away from anything because um, you need that space to just decompress, to kind of find uh, your joy, find your quiet, find your awakening, you know. And I think for some people that is effective. I think other people don't have the ability to turn it off, you know, because it is just so present in their lives and it's so present in what, you know, both their personal and professional existence. And it's a lot about kind of just really continuing to find motivation from anger or from, you know, the joy of victory. I think a lot of people sustain themselves that way. So I think it's really different for 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 people of how they find the space. Uh, for me, I I think that it's really important to to be able to continue to connect to issues outside of criminal justice. So this work matters tremendously to me, and I know it impacts other spaces and that other people are doing really inspiring and great work. And so I do work with United We Dream. I'm on the board of it's an an immigration nonprofit that really is trying to empower young people and undocumented people uh, and really fight for communities who are undocumented. And so I get a lot of passion and excitement from working with them. And it's a different space, but, you know, like we said at the beginning, it's all interconnected, right? Um, And kind of their victories also fuel some of my excitement and passion. So I think you have to kind of find your way because the work is going to be hard no matter what. It's going to be tiring and intense and and a lot of times demoralizing, um, but finding, I think, your own personal way through that and also and also being grounded in like those victories because they are so important. You know, every day we get someone out of jail is a victory for us and is something that we celebrate and, and keeps us grounded and keeps us feeling like even if the road is long, there's small and important things that we're doing every day towards it. I think that's also how you know you're in a space that you care deeply about when those small victories still feel so rewarding. I think that's, to me, at least in my experience, a good signal that I still want to be doing what I'm doing. When one of my students has like a small win or gets a job or whatever it might be, I can see their confidence building through the course of the program. I still love that. And so that tells me, okay, I should still be doing this work. Um, I'm not jaded quite yet. Maybe happen eventually, but not quite yet. So that's good news. As we wrap up this conversation, I'd love to give you a chance just to share advice for people who are listening, who are walking away feeling inspired. I'm sure you have a go-to list of you know advice that you send to people who are interested in working in mass incarceration and criminal justice reform. Are there a couple of organizations that you're particularly excited about or certain cause areas specifically within this field that you would point people to if they're interested in getting their foot in the door? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there are a, a number of big criminal justice organizations that, you know, I think folks tend to know about. The ACLU certainly does important and great work, and Vera are some of the really big organizations that are working specifically on policy. I think in terms of direct service, there are a few um, large national organizations like ROCA or CEO that are really helping um, folks who are reintegrating or need support for jobs, placement. Bail Project, of course, we work on the pretrial space. And there is increasingly a network of organizations that are doing the work that I was doing before Bail Project, uh, which is really education work, often inside the PD Green program, does tutoring inside across the across the country. And then there are a number of organizations that are connected with colleges that are helping to bring college programs inside. So those are really exciting programs. There's also some really interesting kind of organizations, startups that are founding that are trying to disrupt the private space, especially privatization of messages, mail, emails, photos. So they're trying to create low cost ways for people to connect with their family. So those are kind of interesting, I think, opportunities that are more sort of tech and business driven for people that are interested in that. And then, of course, there are hundreds of grassroots organizations across the country. And so aside from those large national organizations, I would really kind of think about it locally and like where can you contribute locally? Because oftentimes what people don't realize about the criminal justice system is that it isn't driven by the federal policy. It isn't even driven sometimes by state policy. It's often driven by very local policies that happen in counties sometimes at the level of individual sheriffs and clerks. And uh, a lot of the change that happens, happens locally. So if you want to, if you're really passionate about this issue, we always encourage people like go sit in a courtroom and watch an arraignment, kind of understand what's happening in the justice system in your town and how people are being treated, how they're kind of coming before a judge and, and what sentencing looks like. And so if you can participate in the courts that way, there are also court watching programs. You can find local programs that are supporting people either through the legal process or coming out of the legal process, people who are inside who might need support or services, book programs where you can donate. There are a lot of ways to get involved, and a lot of times it's driven at the local level. So I would really encourage people to think about that on criminal justice. I think more broadly around social justice, I would just kind of highlight some of the things that we talked about today, you know, kind of really grounding in the work. So finding a way to get on the ground and really be in community with people is is so important, I think, to starting your path and, and finding your way, kind of thinking about the skills that you're interested in and how you can share those with folks and share those with your network. And then really, really being uh, open to meeting people, you know, really, really reaching out. I, I remember when I first started out, I just did so many cold calls to people and just said, you know, hey, I, I called the CEO of Roca and I said, will you speak to me? Will you tell me about your journey? Will you tell me about your path? And so a lot of times it's just reaching out. And, you know, the worst is that someone will say no or not respond. But the best is that someone will be super excited to just share their journey with you and that you might learn something or gain a connection or figure out a way to get involved in the work. So uh, it's the part that I think makes a lot of us feel kind of nervous and a little bit bashful about reaching out. But I, I, I really think that you can gain a lot. Um, you can build that network and you can really learn from people who have been doing this work and who understand where the opportunities and, and, the, and the challenges um, are. I really can't think of a better note to end on. So I will leave it there. Caitlin, thank you so much for, for taking the time to share your journey, share the Bail Project's journey give your advice. And I think I always learn a lot from our conversation. So appreciate you you finding time to, to share with all of us today. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Careers They Didn't Tell You About podcast by Second Day. Please do rate, review, subscribe. It makes a really big difference to our team. If you have any feedback or ideas for me, you can reach out at mariam at secondday.org. That's M-A-R-I-A-M at secondday, spelled out S-E-C-O-N-D-D-A-Y dot org. Music is Blessed Time by Ketza. And this podcast is edited and produced by Maya Volk. <laughs>